Well, good afternoon. I thought uh, during the introduction, I'd show you guys a cartoon that kind of illustrates and provides a little bit of a review of what we talked about last week. Let's review two quick points. The first point of review from last week is illustrated by this old cartoon, and it's the point that many different writers in the Bible all emphasize. That being shown in cartoons like this, that uh, a Christian has two natures. A Christian has two parts deep within them. In cartoons like this one, uh, this first nature is often represented by like a devil that comes out of you. Okay, And uh, it's just the uh, animator's way of uh, showing us that sometimes we've got these impulses inside of us that aren't always beneficial. They're not always in our best interest. Sometimes this kind of impulsive nature is pretty harmless. Sometimes it just whispers things like, stay in bed a little longer, put off that homework for another few hours, roll through that stop sign, nobody else is around. And this particular cartoon, that inner impulse is just going to try to get Donald Duck to skip school and goof off a little bit. That's our first review point from uh, last week. Our second review point from our passage, our scripture passage last week, is exciting news, and it's that when somebody decides to follow Jesus Christ, they have a second nature inside of them as well. And this second nature persuades us or attempts to persuade us to become more like Jesus. The cartoons like this one often depicts this with an angel that comes outside of you or sits on your shoulder. And this second impulse tries to tell us things like follow through with your commitments, make sacrifices that will benefit others, treat others like you want to be treated. Now, I'm not saying that these old cartoons are exactly what the Bible is teaching. Like, I am not giving them my stamp of theological accuracy. It's just a helpful way to start to understand that many teachers in the Bible are telling us that we've got two natures inside of us. We have two warring sets of impulses. And that helps us uh, launch into this promise that the Bible makes that we're investigating every Sunday in January and February. In the book of the Bible titled Galatians, the author Paul says that the more a Christian is able to obey this second impulse, okay, the more we're able to listen and obey that second voice, the more that it encourages us to be more like Jesus, the more that we're able to grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Maybe you're still investigating this Christianity thing and you're thinking to yourself, well, I know people that go to church that aren't improving in any of those areas. Of course, the secret is you have to obey that voice. You have to do what it says and put some of it into practice. So that's what we're investigating, the how do we do that? How do we make this promise true and how do we grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? So the Bible's telling us that 2021 can be a year for you of great maturity and growth. 
And uh, the specific thing that we're going to talk about this afternoon is the first thing on that list, love. Paul is saying that a Christian who is following the second voice in their head, the second impulse, can grow in their ability to love others well. I don't think there's anybody here this morning that doesn't want to grow in their ability to love others in a dynamic and transformational way. I'm going to ask you guys a question or two to see if you're still with me or if you're just off watching cartoons. Do you think that everybody loves the same? Is everybody that you've ever met love in the exact same way? Or do you agree that there's times when some are able to love in a more dynamic, in a more impactful way? Four or five months back, I came across a post on social media that I just thought was so insightful that I saved it on my phone. And it was actually a study that some child psychologists had done. They interviewed about 200 kids and they asked them all the same question. They were all elementary school age children. And the question was, what does love mean? And the answers were great. A large majority of the answers were exactly what you would expect. Kids would say something like, love is when your brother shares his toys. Love is when you get Legos for your birthday. Like... The first level that we learn to love or feel loved is if we're getting what we want. And a lot of the answers reflected that. But there were also a few extraordinary answers that demonstrated that even small children grasp that people love in extraordinary ways. So again, the question is, what does love mean? A girl, Mary Ann, aged four, said this, Love is when your puppy licks you in the face, even when you left him home alone all day. Cindy, age eight, said, During my piano recital, I was on the stage and I was scared. Then my daddy came up and sat next to me and smiled and I wasn't scared anymore. Noel, age seven, says, Love is when you tell a boy in your class that you like his shirt and then he wears that shirt every day for many weeks. Rebecca, age eight, said, When my grandmother got old, she got arthritis and couldn't reach her toenails and paint them anymore. So now my grandfather does it for her. I think that's what love is. Bobby, age seven, said, Love is what's in the room at Christmas if instead of opening your presents, you just listen to everyone else and smile. And my favorite one came from Billy, who was only four years old, and he said this, When someone really loves you, The way they say your name is different. You just know your name is safe because of the way it comes out of their mouth. Isn't that insightful? I love those quotes, and they're cute, and they're charming, and they make us laugh. But more importantly, they illustrate that even small children are perceptive enough to know that some people love with a greater and rarer capacity than others. Uh, So... My question as we get started, are you interested in growing in your ability to love others in this more spirit-filled and dynamic way? If you are, uh, I think a passage that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 uh, is just a treasure of a passage for us to spend a little bit more time studying. So again... Our sermon series is this promise from Galatians 5, where Paul says a Christian should be growing in all these different attributes. And now each week we're going to study another place where Paul has explained how we can do that. And so in today's passage, 1 Corinthians 13, 
Paul is explaining how, us, how we can grow in our ability to love more transformally and more dynamically. So uh, I hope you got a bulletin when you came in. And uh, if you did, you'll find an outline inside of it. And uh, I just want to investigate 1 Corinthians 13 in three quick parts. In part number one, I just want us to learn the context of 1 Corinthians 13. Who wrote it? What was the situation? And uh, as we establish that, I think we'll learn important things from it. Section 2, Paul's critique on selfish love. There's things that we do that we think are loving, and Paul kind of shines some light on those today and does a little diagnostic work, and I think we're going to see that sometimes when we think that we're loving others well, there's some deficiencies there. And then in Section 3, of course, uh, we're going to get to the the how-to. How do we grow in this higher, more sophisticated, more mature form of love that Paul is pointing us to. So section one, let's go through this one really quickly. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, founded a lot of churches uh, in the early church era uh, after we're told Jesus Christ died and uh, resurrected and went back to heaven. And then this business of the church was getting started. Paul started many churches. And uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter that he's writing to a church that started really well. Talks about that in Acts 18, verse 11. Paul was actually with them for over a year because things were going so well and the church was thriving and growing outwardly and in depth so well. Um, But then after Paul left, they were starting to experience uh, some crises. And uh, that's the context of why this letter was written. If you guys spend some time reading through 1 Corinthians, it's going to seem a little bit scattered. It's going to seem a little bit random. But that's because the people had somehow contacted Paul with their questions. And in 1 Corinthians, uh, he is answering. He's systematically answering their, their questions kind of trying to put things back together. They had theological differences that were ripping their church apart. There were people that were just doing some really dirty and immoral things, and the church leaders were trying to figure out how to handle that. They were just people in the church that were quarreling and taking each other to court. And these are all things that Paul is addressing in his response. So it's in 1 Corinthians uh, that uh, Paul is offering, it's like in that context that he's offering this teaching on the importance of loving well. Let me say it a different way. This church in Corinth was founded by a great pastor, probably the best pastor ever. For a year they received incredible teaching, teaching from the guy that wrote most of the New Testament. However, because they weren't loving each other as a congregation, they were a hot mess. Let's think about that for a second. You could have an excellent pastor. You could have great worship. You could have incredible facilities. You could never have to worry about paying your mortgage. But if a congregation doesn't have the discipline to love each other sincerely, your church will be a hot mess. Our church will be a hot mess. So I think that's significant because that's where this famous chapter comes from. Paul did not sit down and open up his scroll and say, I feel inspired to write something that will be quoted at every single wedding for the next 2,000 years. That's not the context, even though that's how we use 1 Corinthians 13. He said, I'm going to teach this congregation the importance of a Christian life lived the right way and how essential sincere love is in that Christian life lived well. 
So let's move on here to section two, and let's start to talk about some of the things that Paul is teaching us about love that's not necessarily sophisticated and mature and to the level a Christian is called to love others with. Let's try to kind of hone in on a definition of this love that Paul is calling us to. And I don't think there's a great definition within this passage itself. But in another place where Paul is writing in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 5, listen to how he describes great love. He says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sin and transgression. It's by grace you have been saved. In other words, in another place, Paul is explaining that the highest way that we can, and there's many ways to love people, but Paul's saying the highest and the greatest way that we can love others is in a sacrificial way. This, this love is characterized by undeserved grace and mercy. Like I think if you're walking with the Lord, you know that He showed great love and mercy and grace to you, and now we're called to let that pour out of us into the lives of others. Um, we even saw this in that, those quotes from the children in the introduction, right? Uh, we were moved because one girl recognized that a puppy's licks are unconditional. doesn't matter how much you've played with it that day, it will still lick you and love you. That girl, Rebecca, reminded us uh, that, a, that, a, that a sacrificial element of love is this macho grandfather who's painting the toenails of his aging bride, right? Like, that's beautiful. It moved us when Cindy shared how her father pushed through a crowd to comfort her in a moment of terror at her childhood piano recital. There's something sacrificial in each of those examples, and that's why it stirs us, because it's the love that we know that we are most hungry for, and it's the love that God has created us with the capacity to show to others. So when Paul's instructing us about this love and how we should strive to show it to others, I think he's referring to the same idea from Ephesians 2. He's saying that Jesus, uh, his, his undeserved demonstration of love transformed us, and now we need to look for opportunities to interject, to show mercy and grace and undeserved love to others. So that's the definition of, I think, what we're being pointed to here. And then Paul goes on to kind of point the finger at the church in Corinth and explain some ways that they're getting it wrong. And as I kind of studied this part of the passage this week, I felt like God was teaching me some ways that I am often loving uh, less mature than I should. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 2. It says, If I speak in the tongue of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only like a, a gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge uh, but do not have love, I am nothing. In other words, Paul is saying that there's people in this church that have dynamic spiritual gifts. Think for a moment about the goosebump moments that you've gotten in church. Sometimes it's when someone is just giving an incredible testimony, a moving sermon, singing with an almost angelic voice, or putting themselves in some sort of drama that just touches you to your heart. And there were very gifted people in the church here in Corinth. But what Paul is saying in verses 1 to 2 is that you can have dynamic spiritual gifts and still be absent of this spirit-filled love 
that he's calling you to have. Paul's saying there's people in the church in Corinth that are great teachers and great singers and great leaders, but everything's a mess because they're not loving in a selfless and sacrificial way. And as a, as a pastor, that gives me pause, right? Because whatever your job is, if people tell you you're good at your job, that's going to make you feel good. But what Paul's saying here is that my highest calling is not to chase after compliments, right? It's just to sincerely love people. As churchgoers, it's the same thing for you too. We're being challenged to love sacrificially and selflessly. No matter how gifted you are, no matter how others pat you on the back and point out your giftedness. Here's another one too. It goes on here uh, at the beginning of uh, verse 3, and it says, If I give all I possess to the poor, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, Paul is saying you could be the oldest, most longest attending, most frequently financial giving person in your church, and still not have the kind of love that he's calling you to have. I want to just stop the recording here for a second. This has actually happened to me. Uh, there was a lady uh, in my last church. She was the oldest member of our church. I didn't have the financial records, but I, I promise you, she gave much more to the church than anybody else. She was a wonderful person by almost all accounts. But when we remodeled our church building, we got rid of the organ that her mother had given to the church. From that point forward, I was enemy number one in her eyes and in her heart. She was a frequently attended the church. She gave a lot of money. She was a good person in a lot of different ways, but she was not loving in the way that this passage is calling us to love. You can be charitable and you can be widely respected and still not loving in the way that God is calling us to love. And uh, this was very convicting. It says here at the end of verse 3, another really challenging thing. You can give over your body to hardship, but still not have love. Let's think really carefully about what this is saying. Moms, dads. It's saying you can do sacrificial things for others on a regular basis and still not be loving in the way that God is calling us to love. I have a very recent example of this. I finished up my sermon a little bit early today, and so I went home at lunchtime uh, to watch a little football and sit there with my boys, but uh, they hadn't had lunch yet, so I decided to take some time and make them some lunch. I made them some melted ham and cheese sandwiches, some macaroni and cheese. I put it all out on the table, and nobody wanted to touch it. <laughs> nobody wanted to eat a bite. And I just flipped out, and I lost it, and I started yelling at them. And I actually said, eat whatever you want for the rest of your life. I don't care anymore. Okay? Now, like, so my family in the back row, I'm very sorry. That was wrong, and I apologize. But isn't that also a very accurate example of how we can actually serve other people with the right intentions? and still be totally absent of the selfless and sacrificial love that we're being called to have. So this is all super challenging, is it not? Pastor Tim Keller is talking about this love that we're called to and how you can even be viewed as just a good person, even without 
having that higher form of love. And he says this, a, a supernaturally changed heart will lead to a morally committed life. But you can easily have a morally committed life without a supernaturally changed heart. I think that's a very profound quote, and I think it sums up what Paul is telling us here in 1 Corinthians 13. So let's move on here to section 3, and let's wrap up with, with how do we grow in this? How do we grow in our ability to love like Jesus loved? And how do we love others like Jesus loved us? Let me just conclude with three points. The first point is this. Paul tells us in verses 11 and 12 that this capacity to love others that we learn and display as a child, it's just a starting point. Okay, Let me read what Paul says here uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, 3. Um, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 13, 11 and 12. He says, When I was a child, I talked like a child, and I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I, I put the way of childhood behind me. In other words, Paul is saying that even a child can love, but we need to grow more mature in the way that we love. I love this radio program. It's also a podcast called This American Life, and they always have kind of a different theme every week. And uh, there's this one episode where they're uh, talking about what it's like to be a middle schooler what it's like to be in 6th grade and 7th grade and 8th grade. And I think they just portray that stage of life so perfectly. They have this reporter who's standing outside of a school gym right as the dance is ending. And the reporter asks the same question to every middle school student that comes out of the dance. They say, uh, how are you feeling right now? And every single student says, bad. <laughs> and they say, why are, you, why are you feeling bad right now? And every single student says, because nobody asked me to dance with them. And then the beautiful follow-up question is, did you ask anybody to dance? And the answer is always no. And I think that uh, shows us that even, even as we're learning to love, the, the, the first way that we kind of become conscious of some of this stuff is we recognize the shortcomings of others to love in the way that we want to be loved, yet we're not mature enough to love others in that, in that way that we would want to be loved. Does that make sense? Maturity in love doesn't mean that you recognize where others fall short. Maturity in love is shown when you demonstrate mature love. We're all able to pinpoint the ways that others haven't loved us well, but maturity in love comes when we are then able to show that, to manifest that love that we're looking for to others, right? Does that make sense? So, you, as we get back into our text here, let me read this because Paul's giving us a great lesson here on what love is and what love looks like. He says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. And I think Paul has done something genius here. He's personified love. 
What does it mean to personify something? Like you put a little sweater on your dog and you put it in the family picture and that makes you chuckle, that makes you laugh because a dog is not a person, but you've made it just seem a little bit more like a person and there's something funny in that. That's called personification. And so Paul is geniusly personifying love. He's saying love is not just ideals that you think about. Love is just not something that you think about the ways that others fall short of doing it. Paul is saying love is acted out in a person's life in these ways. And then he makes it sound like love is actually a person. I'm going to read through that passage again, and I'm going to say blank instead of love. And when I do that, I want you to put your name there, okay? So like if I say blank is patient, I want you to say Todd is patient, whatever your name is, okay? I want you to think of how many of these might be said about you with your name in that spot. Blank is patient. So should we not say it if it doesn't apply to us? Yeah, yeah, just, just think about it in your head. Blank is kind. Blank does not envy. Blank does not parade themselves around. Blank is not puffed up. Blank does not behave rudely. Blank does not seek its own way. Blank is not easily provoked. Blank thinks no evil thoughts. Blank does not rejoice in unfairness. Blank endures hard things. Blank has faith. Blank hopes. Okay? Love is not just recognizing the absence of it in other people's lives or other people's attempt. Love is when we put ourselves into these situations and we demonstrate these things sacrificially in the life of others. All right, so the three points here that we're working our way through. Paul is saying that everybody can love, but, but we're being called to a higher demonstration of love, even more than, than we did as a child. Secondly, he's saying this is what love looks like in the life of a person. It's not just pointing out the shortcomings of others. That's not what love is. Love is you putting yourself into these situations and demonstrating those virtues in loving ways to others. And finally, what's our third point that Paul's leaving us with here in 1 Corinthians 13? It's my favorite one, and it's this. Paul's saying God's going to help us. Paul's saying you're not on your own. Paul's saying he knows that this is so hard for human beings that God has entered into us through his Holy Spirit to give us a prompt and a challenge and an encouragement to help us do it. That's the good news of those two natures within us. We have one impulse that challenges us to be self-seeking, but we have another impulse that's empowering us to love as Jesus loved. How do we accomplish this? How does a Christian grow in their ability to love like Jesus loved? Many writers in the Bible talk about this. In 1 John 4, 10-11, John writes this, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us this way, we ought to love others this way as well. Okay? We're called to live sacrificially for others, and God is going to help us to do that. Uh, the last two years have been tough for me. I've had a lot of relational and uh, just logistical challenges in my life. My family uh, has a, a health condition that involves 
checkups and medicine every couple of hours that none of us get a break from around the clock, and that can be really challenging. My father's in a nursing home, and before COVID uh, made visits impossible, back when we lived in the same town, I would often get calls in the middle of the day, and they'd say, Scott, your father is out of control. We need you to come here and help us. I'd have to stop my meeting or whatever I was doing and interject myself into a very challenging situation. How about COVID with kids not going to school, with kids being home dozens of extra hours a week? I mean, that's hundreds of extra meals and loading the dishwasher and breaking up fights and uh, extra attention that, uh, that some of us are called to. And in every single one of these challenging situations, and I know that you guys face situations that are just as difficult. We're at a crossroads and we have to decide, am I going to retreat or am I going to love this person uh, in the way that they need to be loved right now? Am I going to retreat to my garage or the place that I go when I don't want to deal with the hard things? Or am I going to love this person who doesn't deserve it just like Jesus loved me when I was undeserving of that transformational love? Let's wrap up with this. Did you guys ever hear the story of the Velveteen Rabbit? You guys remember that one? We don't have time for the whole story, so this is the uh, one-paragraph summary from Wikipedia. It was originally written by a woman named Marjorie Williams in 1922, and uh, it's a beautiful illustration of what it is that we're learning about here in 1 Corinthians 13. So there's a stuffed rabbit that's sewn from the Velveteen fabric, and it's given as a Christmas present to a small boy. The wisest and the oldest toy in the nursery, the skin horse. I always thought that was kind of creepy. There's like this leather horse. And he tells the rabbit about how toys can magically become real due to being loved extremely well by children. The velveteen toy rabbit is awed by this idea, but he knows that his chances of ever achieving this are very small. So one night the boy's nanny gives the rabbit to the boy to sleep with in place of another lost toy, and the rabbit becomes the boy's favorite, enjoying picnics with him in the spring. And over time, the boy starts to imagine the, rab the toy rabbit as real. Time passes, and the rabbit becomes shabbier and worn out. His eye falls out, and he has tears in his stitching. Uh, one day the boy comes down with scarlet fever and the rabbit sits with him in his bed as he recovers. The doctor orders the boy should be taken to the seaside and as he goes on vacation, all of his toys should be disinfected and burned, including the velveteen rabbit. The rabbit's bundled into a sack and left out in the garden overnight. The toy rabbit cries and a real tear drops onto the ground. A fairy explains that because he has become real to the boy who truly loves him, he is now real to everyone. In other words, how does the Velveteen Rabbit become real? He becomes real as he's worn out through loving another well. If you've got someone in your life that requires extra care, extra responsibilities, if there's things in your life that try your patience, if there's people around you that are extra needy, it's an opportunity for you to pour out a sacrificial love that Jesus first showed to you. And as you become worn out, 
as you become used up like the velveteen rabbit, your love becomes dynamic and transformational in the life of that person. It becomes real. It becomes more dynamic. So I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and close us with a final song or two. And as they do, I, I hope some of these thoughts from 1 Corinthians 13 are just kind of coming into focus. Paul is saying that everybody knows what love is, but Christians are called or given a higher capacity to love. And that higher capacity doesn't mean that we're better than other people. It means that we've seen a greater model of love through what Jesus Christ has done for us. And because of that greater model, and because of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we now have an opportunity to demonstrate that transformational love into the lives of others who need it as well. Let the Holy Spirit be the power that helps you to do that. Let that angel come out of you and whisper into your ear in those challenging and demanding moments of how your love can impact that needy person. Let's think about that as we wrap up with this final song or two.